this is something that I will say over and over again to KidLit people, because if you look at when I started KidLit, which was in 2015, it looks like a really fast ramp up. And so I have to tell people, no, 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 you don't understand. I have been writing since 2000. Contribute a verse. I'm Brenna Jenneret, Kidlet author and co-host of this podcast, obviously. I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Munkin, Kidlet author, dad and science communicator, and podcast wizard, John Seymour, an author, illustrator, family man, and dadadude. And that was our guest for today, Steph Lucianovic, reminding us that you don't just wake up one day and decide to be a Kidlet writer. If you're in the query trenches, if you're hearing crickets on sub, if you just got started, keep going. Steph's book, What is Hope, illustrated by Kelsey Buzel, drops today and is the perfect button for Steph's point. Writing takes time, and it's okay to take a break, sometimes a long break. Writing will be here when you come back, and so will hope. Also, you'll want to check out Steph's page to see Tara Hannon's original illustrations that help to inspire this beautiful and important book. But first, a word about our sponsor. Have a dead manuscript of your own? Need help revising that manuscript or your query? Or maybe you just want help with comps and agent research, or your pitch could use some love. Check out Justin Colon's new editorial services. He offers everything from full manuscript critiques with Zoom call to assistance with comp titles and brainstorming sessions. And if you can't decide what package is right for you, no worries. All of Justin's services can be purchased a la carte style, so mix and match whatever works best for you. And if you're looking for even more guidance on your journey to publication, check out the Kidlet Hive's newest offering, From Idea to Publication, with senior editor at Charlesbridge, Karen Boss. In this six-week class, Karen will walk you through the journey of getting that shiny new idea, polishing up that manuscript, selling your story, and seeing it on the shelf. Whether you're a beginner or intermediate writer, you'll walk away with the invaluable knowledge of the publishing world, including writing, process, expectations, and surprises. Sign up today at thekidlithive.com. Fall off because they're cheap. The other yeah. ones, but then I just got used to the way I look in these. So I just like wear them all the time and they're usually <laughs> replaceable. I mean, that's awesome. Cause I don't know how many pairs of sunglasses I've owned in my oh life. My like yeah. I have actually, like I have glasses and I wear contacts and whatever, but I don't wear, I just wear my glasses at night. I usually have contacts in during the day. So I don't break my actual glasses, but sunglasses. Oh my gosh. Constantly all the time. Oh, sunglasses. Right? I have to buy them cheap also at Amazon. Cause I am yeah. always losing them, dropping them, stepping on them. Sitting on them. I sit on them all the time, right? Like that more than, more than usual. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not really even like a huge person, but like, I am like constantly sitting on and breaking these glasses. And I'm just like, what is happening? Like, why is my butt like finding these all the time? It's got like a magnet in it for sunglasses. I don't know. First of all, hi, Steph. Second of all, so surprised. (laughs) Hi. I'm surprised to hear that you sit on your sunglasses considering like, my conception of you is that the only time that you're sitting down is to do the podcast. <laughs> Otherwise, you're on your that's feet. that's kind of fair. Although I do spend a fair amount of time in the car because, like, Finn goes to forest school and it's half an hour away. So we spend, you know, a lot of time like car car like occupied, I guess. But like, so in and out of the car because I'm like, okay, 
put the keys here, put the stuff here, get my sunglasses yeah. like out of the way, right? And then I like don't remember. So I'm like getting in in a rush to do something else and I sit on them. Like all the I'm time. still I'm still trying to figure out because I, I don't have prescriptive um uh sunglasses. So I'm switching back and forth. One's on my uh. head, one's here. Um, that's the other thing is having cheaper glasses. I, I'm constantly pushing them up here when I don't need them. I need them for reading. I need them for this, but I don't need them for distance or driving. So the more I push them on my head, the wider they, you know, they yes. start to separate and then break yes. easily. And yes, that is what sister said. You got to get a chain. And, I, and she's like, I know it's an old lady thing, but you got to get a chain. <laughs> have your kids make a chain. Stop putting them on your head. No, it's true because that's where mine usually break too at the at the bendy part at the yeah. hinge always yeah. Yeah. yeah and my parents the have you done part. the thing where you've got them on your head and then you also have a pair on your face and then like a pair on your and well, then you wear I my glasses do the two it's the sunglasses that I put up on my head after driving but then I go in the grocery store and I have to look at something so that I've got the ones on my face <laughs> and then the other ones fall off and it's just it's a whole big mess yeah yeah it's too many it's just it's too mm. many things. Josh, how many pairs of glasses do you have? Just the one. <laughs> I, well, yes, that's the point I was about to make. Is I, I realize now that I I ride a dangerous. What's the euphemism? I, I'm walking a dangerous line, only having one pair of glasses at all. I need a pair of prescription sunglasses. I will say that I do have also a very scratched up pair of foldable sunglasses <laughs> that I got at Old Navy years and years oh. ago. They fold up into the size of one lens. Uh, and then you unfold them into two lenses and the and the arms unfold. It's very convenient to go to the pool. Or, Those you know, sound super cool. And whatever, I, can, I talk have about, to wear sunglasses outside. Yeah. I mean, I can't be outside. Even in some, you know, we're having some sort of cloud cover today. Even in that light, I have to wear them. And I said that to my eye doctor. And he's like, yes, you have very wide eyes. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I guess that's the explanation why I cannot possibly <laughs> drive or be outside without sunglasses. I have wide eyes. <laughs> Who Speaks knew? to my my right. my biology as well as my approach to life. <laughs> nice. That I like. I well like played. that. Going into life with your eyes wide. Eyes wide yeah. open. Whatever. Right. Something. And glasses on your head. Yes. That's right. <laughs> welcome to <laughs> Welcome to recording a podcast with us, Steph. Hey, I listened to the last one and I, I was prepared because I thought this was the mug podcast. So I brought the <laughs> mug. But now oh, it's the glasses podcast. I love that so much. Yeah, but chronologically, yeah, chronologically, we're, we're recording right after the Claire Taylor Little Thoughts Press Magazine uh, yes. episode came out. So you you chose a a, a bashing uh, face bashing uh, mug. <laughs> no, yeah, so this is this is this is let's I'll call it my brag mug. Ooh, it's from Urban Dictionary. Okay, it's from the fact that they've got a store. I are you guys familiar with the TV show um, reality show on Bravo called Top Chef? Yes, I love Top Chef. Okay, I love Gregory. Course. Do you know? See, I've stopped watching it, but do you know what do they call the people who participate? Contestants. Well, actually, <laughs> they call them chef testants. Okay, and the reason why they call them chef testants is because when that show first started, I covered it at the time I wrote for a TV watching. Um, website called Tell Without Pity. I covered it what? as a recapper for it. I invented the word. Here's the definition. Bonafide Are you kidding there. me? 
I'm not kidding. It's it's both something I'm proud of and I and I want to apologize for. But basically, after I started using it a lot on this this website that my friends had created was a very highly trafficked website that, by the way, Bravo eventually bought. We didn't just cover Bravo shows. We covered all shows. So many shows. I did Star Trek. I did Top Chef. I did, oh my gosh, so many shows that got canceled. But and so, so What is the name start- of the site again? It, so it started out in the early 2000s being called um, Mighty Big TV, and then it became Television Without Pity, and awesome. then the owner sold yeah, it. that's the name I know. Yep. So I was one of the original recappers for that site in starting in, it was like one of my first, with my first, writing jobs in 2000. Um, so I came up with this, uh, you know, this term because I was sick of typing chef contestant, chef contestant. So I was like, chef contestant, whatever. So... Um, <laughs> It started getting used by Bravo itself, like on their, you know, on their marketing materials, on their TV, and they started using it. I'm like, I get no money from it. So I bought myself a mug that says, amazing. I have an Urban Dictionary entry. <laughs> that is amazing. At least now on this podcast, you get credit for it, right? I mean, I love Why all of it. I need it. <laughs> right? And also, I just want to say, because Josh and I mention this kind of often on the show, but like, we do, you know, we know enough about our guests that we're like, okay, we know what we want to talk about. Here's some things we could bring up, whatever. But like, we don't do a whole lot of detailed planning sure. because of things like this. Like this is, a, I had, there's no, there's no way we could have prepared for this sort of like <laughs> bombshell. Like this is so cool. Like I have so many questions about yeah. like how you got this job. And I mean, you've been writing for forever. I've been writing like, for 23 years. So it was, I mean, I did, I think it was probably technically my first paid writing job. How I got this job was that, um, it's kind of nepotism, if marriage can be nepotism. My husband went to college with one of the founders of the site, had mentioned to me, she's super funny. They write these recaps. It was all, only Dawson's Creek at the time. And it was called Dawson's Rap. What? I loved Dawson's Creek. Don't judge me. <laughs> well, so that was the thing. The whole idea of the site was predicated on the idea of, we're sitting on our couch watching TV and we're yelling at it. It was like hate watching. Yes. And so we were hired. And so basically I sent a sample writing where I did like, um, I basically auditioned by sending in a recap of Dawson's Creek and Sarah Bunting, one of the original founders hired me because I said that D- Dawson flounced out of the room and it was just my use of the word flounced. She's like, that you're hired. A perfect way to describe how right. he moved. That is so then the site expanded and there were a lot of us recappers and what we essentially did, we got paid, but we wrote thousands of words for a single recap. So if you missed a show, the whole point of the site was you could read our recaps, get a full, full on blow by blow of every aspect of the episode, not a summary, like full on recap. And with it, you got our little snarky commentary, our little jokes, like, you know, what we were seeing in the show. I mean, I... My first show was recapping a spinoff of Party of Five. Oh, my God. Jennifer Love Hewitt yes. called Time of Your Life. It was like one of the dumbest shows ever. Oh, um, but it was a hate watching show. And so so and then I should actually I should make this leap to Kidlet. So one of my final shows I did before the site was bought and I, and I stopped writing for it was a show called Jericho. Jericho was a show that was like kind of post-apocalyptic. Oh man, I remember that show. And initially another recapper had it and she really kind of hated it. My husband and I were like, we had gotten to the stage of like, I think I went through these stages of really hating the TV shows I recapped and like virulently hating them and doing my job with all this hate. Got to Jericho (laughs) and I was like, 
this is a big, dumb show. It's kind of like that big, dumb jock that you love. Like they're stupid, but you love them. And you don't know why, because there's some really redeeming aspects. The, the himbo of television. <laughs> there you go. Totally. So I got this gig because they were like, you, you're kind of into the show. I'm like, yes. So I loved it. I pointed out the flaws, but I also pointed out what was awesome because there was a lot that was awesome. The show got like canceled after, I think it was after the second season, but the fans, myself included, went literally nuts because there was a line on the show where a character said nuts to an invading force. They bombarded the movie studio or TV studio, and I can never remember the networks, it may have been ABC, with bags and bags and bags and bags of peanuts. Like they just, it was this whole campaign that hadn't, oh the like hadn't been seen since the original Star Trek series where the fans campaigned to bring it back. They brought it back for a third season. They gave us our closure. It was wonderful. But at some point in this process, before the cancellation, one of the writers, his name is Matthew Fetterman, reached out to me to say, just want to let you know that me and my writing partner, Steve, Steve Scalia, Scalia, um, love your recaps. We love that you love the show. We love all the criticisms you have. They're warranted, but we just wanted to let you know, like, thank you or whatever. Okay. The weird Kitlid connection is Matt. So I loved Matt and Scott after that. It was wonderful. You know, we've been friendly online for years. Matt Fetterman has a wife and her name is Cassandra Fetterman. Cassandra Fetterman is an author illustrator represented by Jennifer March Soloway and was in my debut group in 2019, Notable oh 19. Gosh. In fact, she just announced um, a picture book yesterday, a uh, picture oh book deal. Gosh. And it was just like, Cass and I became friends totally separate, but like it was just this whole very strange, my two worlds colliding over the years. So bring it all back to Kid Lit. Wow. That's incredible. I, I don't even know. I don't even know where to start. I love all of that. That sounds like the best job ever and like super fun. And how many peanuts did they get? And what did they do with them? And like... I don't know, but I remember writing a parody of... Uh, it was. I wrote it in script, and I wrote a parody of what was happening in the offices and how I was showing the executives becoming slowly unraveled by all the peanuts, including <laughs> one that had a nut allergy. Um, I have no idea. I mean, I, it was so many years ago. Let's see. I it was before I had kids. So it was over ten years ago, um, but it was great. I think I I may have covered it on the blog that I had at the time. It, but it was an amazing thing. I don't even know how many metric tons or whatever. But it it was enough to convince them. Oh my god. Fine. We'll give you guys a next. Just stop. Please stop sending us nuts. Yes, please. <laughs> it's worth millions of dollars it's, uh, right? for to us right. to stop getting peanuts. But I still so love that my show. Reaction. Here's I my reaction. I DVDs. I own yeah. the DVDs now. Um, I rewatched it a lot. I just, it was a joy to cover and to make fun of and to also love it for what it really was good at. Oh my gosh. I just, and I love that you had, that you mentioned Dawson's Creek. Cause like I, you know, we grew up sort of in the same era. Like I grew yes. up watching Dawson's Creek like and Felicity. Yeah. Cause that was like Felicity. a big crossover, yes. right? Like <laughs> I love all of that so much. Oh my gosh. And I just, just pointing out, I mean, you started in 2000 because a, a lot of times you see authors like yourself included. Like I look at your like list, you know, in your bio and you're just like, 
oh my gosh, like, you know, she's written so much, like she's got all this success, but it, you know, it takes a while to like get to that place. It's not like you just showed up and you were like, hey, here's all my kidlit books. This is something that I will say over and over again to kidlit people, because if you look at when I started kidlit, which was in 2015, it looks like a really fast ramp up. And so I have to tell people, no, 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 you don't understand. I have been writing since 2000 and learning how to write since 2000. Like every new piece I wrote, Tellers Without Pity essentially taught me how to write because I would do my recaps. And then I was such a nerd that when they went live on the site, I would do a side-by-side comparison to see what my editor had done, my editor Sarah had done to improve whatever I had written, whether it was a joke, whether it was grammar, whatever. Um, and I got better at it. I just did that for a long time. And it was a it was a constant practice of writing. And for Tellers Not Pity, it was at least one huge recap a week. If I had more than one show, then it was multiple recaps a week. Um, so it was it was a really, really big job. And we didn't get paid very much. God bless the uh, founders that they paid us anything. But we did love to do what we did. And I still credit that site with why I became a writer. I had not thought about being a writer before then. It was just for fun. It was just like, oh, this seems like I could do this. So yeah, it's been a very long, well, long career, but trajectory for me to get to the kidlet. So I kind of, it's like I knew how to write before I started writing kidlet. You know, my first book was a nonfiction memoir for the adult market. And I always say that I learned how to write books by writing that book. And that was also a tough job. Um, but every piece of writing, every freelance thing, every online article I wrote, blog, uh, cause I did food blogging for a while, all of that just added to the fact that I could just raise myself up and, and be honing it. I didn't start writing by saying I would never written a thing and now I want to write picture books. It was more like I got to picture books because I was so sick of the picture books that I was reading to my kids and I complained about it. <laughs> in a New York yes. Times piece I wrote. And um, <laughs> soon after that, I had gotten um, some recommendations from friends uh, about newer books that I had never heard of. And I was like, wait, this is picture book writing? And my mother-in-law gave me a book that I loved by Julie Fogliano called um, And Then It's Spring. That's the book that I was like, oh my God, I love this. Can I, can I do this? I'll just write one. I'll write yeah. one to see if I can do it. Um, and I didn't, obviously I didn't stop at one, but that's how I got moved into the picture book writing arena. I never thought I would write fiction, honestly. It was, it was out of indignation. It was, well, it was, well, I love to say that I was completely wrong. I mean, I wasn't wrong in the books I hated because they were, I don't know. They were just older books, books that I had grown up with, books that my kids just made me read too many times. (laughs) And Julie did. Books that Betsy, Betsy and Kate would reject. <laughs> well, actually, books they, if well, they on would the definitely podcast. debate it. But then it was when I was listening to a podcast, I was really into my, like, I'm going to study. I'm going to learn everything I can about picture book writing. I was listening to, was it Nick? Was his name Nick Cannon? The picture booking podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that sounds familiar. Uh, Nick Cannon is a TV okay. actor, I think. And is there also Nick in, in sync. <laughs> Patton. Nick Patton? Patton. That was it. That was right. I feel so bad with similar, names. though. <laughs> it's not Josh. Anyway, it was called the Picture Booking Podcast. I don't know if that still exists because I was also listening to Matthew Winner's podcast. And I was listening to some old episodes when I heard Nick. Sorry, Nick, if your name is Josh. 
uh, talk to Julie Danielson. It is Nick Patton. Sorry, it I is just Nick Patton. Okay, good. Nick. So, okay. Patton. you know, Sorry, Cannon, Nick. Patton. You can argue They're that similar. General Patton had cannons. So, you know, military, right. military yeah. yes. terminology. Thank you. So he's talking to Julie Danielson, and she mentions. She's like, yeah, I, I read this blog post on the New York Times the other day about how this mom was fed up with writing or with reading kid lit. And, I and stopped, that was your I'm, post? That was my post. I'm in the middle of a run. I'm like, this is really surreal. What's going on? They're talking about me. Julie was so kind, though. She wasn't there to eviscerate me, but she did mention. She's like, well, she's reading all the wrong books. So I wrote a blog post over at, um, it was either her blog or a school library journal. Or Kirkus, I can't remember. Uh, sort of recommending what I should be reading, I guess. So I went over to read the post. And again, her post was so nice. She was not like trying to shame me or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I think the commentators were trying to shame me, although I just don't read the comments anymore. But mm-hmm. um, I was like, this is wild because I'm trying to write like this because of how much I love picture books, which is a complete opposite to how I felt when I wrote that post. I reached out to Julie. I told her the whole story. She loved it. She thought it was hilarious. And I told her where I was at that point in my journey. When I reached out to her, I think I had sold my first book and could like tell her. (laughs) You know, it's just, you know, I have, um, I absolutely will admit to having blinders on and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to admit that I did not know what I was talking about when I wrote that post. I just was taking it from what I had in our home library. (laughs) Well, what took you? What took you to the New York Times? Okay, that's also um, so. When I wrote my first book, which is called "Suffering Succotash: A Picky Eater's Quest to Find Out Why We Hate the Foods We Hate," that was my nonfiction <laughs> memoir. Amazing. I used to be a picky eater. I was a super picky eater growing up. I changed as an adult for reasons that I explore in the book. But I changed so hard that I became a, I went to culinary school. I worked for Jacques Pepin on a cooking show. What? Who um, are you? These are, so, how many lives have you lived? <laughs> like, I have props. I have props. How much, have props. How much time do you Pepin, have this morning? Like, this is like, he always signs wooden spoons for the people who work on his show. So I worked in the back kitchen of one of his KQED, um, Fast Food My Way. Um, so I went to culinary school, worked for Jacques Pepin, became a food writer, food blogger, major foodie in the San Francisco Bay Area cheesemonger at some point because that was just well, was bill paying but it was fun and stinky um and so i i my husband was like you really should write about how is it that you used to be so picky and now you like pretty much eat everything and i was like i don't know but i also know a lot of food bloggers in my community who are former picky eaters i wonder if there's a connection so i wanted to explore the science the psychology picky eaters are usually anxious people there's a genetics component, all of this. So I wrote this book and it was like, talk about uh, selling adult books compared to children's books. There's just a huge difference. That book, I figured we would go on sub and I wouldn't hear from my agent at the time for months. I heard from her in a week. I got on calls with editors. I had an offer by the end of the week. Wow. Still haven't earned it out because adult books pay way more money. Holy. So I mean, that's a good. That book, oh, don't tell me that. I can't write adult books. That's a good pro books. tip. I was gonna say maybe I can like dip my toe into that market. <laughs> wow, they're easier to get books accepted, and they and they pay more. They don't usually earn out, I guess, probably. But anyway, so in the course of investigating, how should I promote or help market this book? I did some of my own outreach, and one of the things I did was reach out to. There was a blog at the New York Times at the time called The Motherlode. I don't know if it's still there, if it's changed, 
But I reached out to the editor and I, I basically pitched her, do you want to cover this book? Do you want to read this book? And she said, why don't you write about it for me? Write a blog post. And I'll never forget, I read that email and my husband found me crying in the kitchen. And I was like, I'm going to be published in the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah, that's so a big deal. I wrote that first one. And then, and basically my, my approach to it was, um, parents are the picky. It's not your fault. Because you can have the same parent and have kids who, in the same family, raised the same way. Some are picky, some are not, whatever. Um, I then continued to pitch KJ several other topics. Um, I wrote about um, I wrote about parenting blogs and how they're stressful to read because they say all these. I wrote parody titles for that, but I did pitch this idea of I'm really fed up with reading. I was pregnant at the time with my second child, so I was in general very very tired throughout the entire day yeah so i was grumpy and not wanting to read books and stuff like that and i knew it made me sound like the worst mother possible in the world. how could you just not want this precious time with your child oh my god you're so unnatural so it was that's how i got to the new york times i basically had pitched that first book topic and then pitched a couple other ideas and i think i wrote like five or six pieces for them i'm looking at your bylines here yeah uh from from mid 2012 let's see one two three four five yeah through uh late 2013 yeah. Yeah. yeah five different ones but i also wrote for entertainment weekly about uh well when leonard nimoy died they reached out to me because i'd written about star trek and they're like can you do you want to cover something and i said sure and so my article was that i thought spock was sexy and so my whole article was, <laughs> was that my justification for finding spock sexy so that was another weird component <laughs> of my life. Could you give us the highlights of that? Because I'm per I'm personally interested because <laughs> an overview of why. Yeah, I'm just sexy, interested just in your okay, so basic argument yeah. because <laughs> there's the finding the brain sexy, the finding of smart people being sexy. Okay. There's also okay. my particular attraction, I think, to dark haired, dark eyed people. My husband, dark haired, dark eyed. Um, and then I think I said there was this underlying thing of wanting to like really get under his skin because he was so controlled, you know, his emotions were so controlled. So that was like a challenge. And I, I, I don't remember anything else, but I did like that a while ago. Well, it wasn't that long ago, but yeah, yeah. Those, those are probably the highlights. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean... I like that yeah. piece. I've got I've got two out of the two out of the three. <laughs> so Josh is a big, or at least I would like to think that I've a got big the first proponent one. <laughs> of that. <laughs> yeah. I wow. I don't even know where to start. I mean, Steph, we were talking about this before you came on, and we both were like, we're huge fans of yours. Like so much respect for you in the kidlit community, and I I was like, I have so much that I want to talk to her about. But that was, you know, 20 minutes ago before I knew all about <laughs> the New York Times and Top Chef. Before, and before like, you knew about like, my past. Yeah, and now I love you even more. Like, I didn't know if it was, like, possible. But I just, I don't even know where to start with all of this. Like, I'm so impressed. Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's uh, It's been a definitely weird career at some times. But now I feel like I've, I'm sort of steady in what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, or at least I'd like to feel I am. I, who knows? Whenever I go on sub, I, I feel unsteady. You know, whenever I'm writing something new, I feel unsteady. Uh, but I know totally. that I'm probably never going to do anything else. It, except become a park ranger. Could if we, I could. 
amazing. I actually worked you in could the do that on the side. for a summer. I was sort of a park ranger for one summer. It was really fun. It was I great. Love that. In California, actually. I lived in... Really? Yeah, I lived in South Lake Tahoe for like six years. And I worked at... Um, do you know Sugar Plum? No. I mean, State I know Tahoe, park. sort of, but... Yeah, it's up on the... It's, yeah, like South Shore, like halfway between South Lake and Truckee is where I worked for... Oh, yeah, for just amazing. like the summer. That was so cool. Yeah, it was very cool. We did mostly like park maintenance and we made like spots okay. handicapped accessible because it was like early 2000s. And so we were like, you know, making a wheelchair accessible and like adding. I know, love that. When stuff. I yeah. lived in San Francisco before we moved down the peninsula, before we had kids, um, I volunteered for the Golden Gates Park Conservatory. Whatever. Con- conservancy? Conservancy. <laughs> conservancy. Um, yeah. <laughs> words are hard. The uh, whatever. I helped do, I did trail restoration and it was oh, yeah. a great volunteer job that I did like once a week and I absolutely loved it. I just loved being in the dirt and outside and, mm-hmm. you know, just using all those kinds of muscles. And in fact, I loved it because I wasn't in front of my computer waiting to write or waiting to yes. get back on writing. It just was a real nice relief to have my mind totally free from the writing side of things. Yes. Yeah, totally. We used to take our lunch breaks by this um, really cool waterfall because there's also a really historic building up on um, Lake Tahoe. So we also spent half the time I worked there restoring this old building, which was really cool. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it was it was that. amazing. And then our lunch hour, we would spend at the park, right, like right under this waterfall. And I didn't, I was like, I was 20 and I'm like, well, I'm not going to bring my suit and like switch out and whatever. So we would just swim like in our underwear and there was like tourists like coming back and forth and we were like eating our lunch, sitting on these rocks, like swimming and whatever. And then we'd like, you know, dry off, whatever, go back to work. And then <laughs> that's amazing. Stuff you do when you're that, awesome. That is so good. <laughs> I love it. That's, that's yeah. great. It's time for this week's book reviews. As of the writing of Josh's review, he sadly just got the call to finally turn in Matthew Forsyth's Mina back at the library. His librarian immediately commented on how much she loves that book as well, which is a ringing endorsement. Mina is not only really lushly and colorfully illustrated, as an author, it has some really inspirational tension building in the form of quote-unquote squirrels. The central danger of the book, brought on by Mina's foolish father, is immediately clear to us as readers and to main character Mina. The tension plays out over over a number of spreads, culminating in a rare picture book chase scene and hilarious triumph. Check this one out, as well as Forsyth's Poco and the Drum. From John, John's a big fan of myth, fables, folklore, and legends, and so seeking a book with the title The Elders Are Watching by David Brochard is in the myth and legend book section really caught his eye. This book is not what he was expecting at all in the least, but in the best way. What an amazing and incredibly powerful lyrical tale about what humans have achieved, but also what they've forgotten and subsequently taken advantage of. It's thought-provoking with gorgeous illustrations, and I couldn't recommend it enough to everyone. And my review for this week is an old and bizarre story, The Day I Swapped My Dad for Two Goldfish by Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean. For those of you on Blue Sky, I felt this was an appropriate review this week based on the Discord chat about our all Neil Gaiman all the time threads. That and this book is bizarre and quirky in all the best ways. I mean, who trades their dad for goldfish? And whose dad doesn't even notice he's been traded for goldfish but goes on reading the newspaper? The illustrations are fun yet creepy and the whole thing makes you feel like, what just happened? If you, al- if you haven't already, check this one out. It's a true gem. And don't forget to get your own reviews and library requests in. They're the number one ways to help an author's sales. 
And now, back to our show. So, okay, okay, so I'll bring it back to Kidlet because I do want to explore this because um, I feel like, especially now, like, I don't know what it is about the universe, but there's like a lot of upheaval, like everybody's lives that I know right now, like there's just a lot and just, you know, yeah. the world in general. Yeah. So I know that you have had several agents, What and I know you switched also recently, you know, Kidlet drama. Um, but can you, can you tell us a little bit about like the, the background of like switching agents and like how that happened? Cause I know a lot of people are sort of in that boat and it's helpful to hear, you know, someone who's so successful, you know, that you, you went through that and you came out the other side and you're okay. So like, if you, if you could just tell us a little bit about so your far. journey. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, okay. So I've had, I'm on my fourth agent. Yeah, I yeah. had my first agent um, for Whoa. my nonfiction adults, and she only did adult. Oh, okay. Um, so when I came to write Kidlet, I did go to her and say, um, "I know you don't, you don't cover Kidlet, but does anyone in the agency cover Kidlet?" Mm. Well, one person did. So she sent over one of my manuscripts to that agent, and she loved it. Was all about it. Um, and long story short. It went really wide. It got very widely rejected. And then she kind of lost interest in me, I think, and um, didn't seem to like anything else I had written. Oh. And then sort of was like, sent me an email. Like, it was like Valentine's weekend. Oh my And gosh. it was like, it's not you, it's me. Um, <laughs> I think you would benefit from someone. I'm kind of pulling back from the picture book sphere. Uh, you know, and I was so demoralized i Dukes was like myself and... uh, it was very yeah it was i was like this is a boyfriend breakup if i've ever heard one right and that's how it felt and i was i felt ashamed i felt embarrassed i felt like what did i do wrong yes. and she you know she said there's nothing you've done wrong i'm like it's clearly something i've done but um so i didn't know much about the kidlet sphere at the time i was in the i was on the blue boards at scbwi's website um trying to learn stuff but I felt so, I was like, this, this, I've been dumped. This is awful. This is so embarrassing. Yeah. Then I came across a couple of blog posts that talked about when you leave your agent or when your agent leaves you. And I'm like, oh, okay, this happens. <laughs> then I reached out to people on the blue boards that I knew were on their second agent and like talked to them about it. And they were like, yeah, it happens. And this is what happened to me and whatever. So, okay. So that was agent number two. So then I went queried um and you know got close a couple of times got like heartbreakingly close mm. even had a weird situation where a, an agent and i were in a weird relationship where she wasn't my agent but we were going back and forth with the same manuscript that she liked and she would suggest edits and and at some point i was like just to be clear you're not my agent right oh. and she was like no no no, I'm, I'm taking a real long time to acquire and i was like i'm so completely confused but fine i'm glad i asked this is like um, friends with benefits. Is that like the was, scenario here? It's right. like so bizarre. I, Agents with benefits. Right. It was very bizarre. It was very bizarre. And in fact, when I got an offer of representation from New Leaf, it was from Joe Volpe who offered me. I went back to this person as well as others that I've been querying and just said I had this offer. And this person that I've been going back and forth with over a period of months was like, I really like the work we've done, but I'm not ready to like jump in with you like right away. And if this person that's offering you is like, and that's what you want, go for it. The other person who offered me rep was Danielle Smith. So that was, um, if you remember that whole thing that happened with her agency at the time and all the sort of fraudulent stuff, that drama years and years ago. 
Um, so, so I got an, so I got an offer of representation from Joe and I decided to take it. And then I was with Joe for a bit. I don't even remember how long a year. And she had a baby in the meantime. And then she was pulling back from picture books within New Leaf <laughs> and said, we're bringing on this new agent, uh, Jordan, and think that that's where you're going to go now. And I was sort of like, this is the second time I feel like that this someone is telling me they're pulling back from picture books. And it was very much that feeling of it's not it's not you, it's me, but it was me, but whatever. Right. So Jordan and I, I was one of her initial clients. And I. it was hard to ever shake that feeling of like feeling like I'd been dumped on her, even though she assured me that's not how she felt. And over the years, we built up a really solid, good, supportive relationship. Had its ups and downs, nothing major, just sort of like, working things out, getting used to each other. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, as you know, kidlet drama that happened, Jordan was fired from New Leaf, along with most, if not all, of her clients were kind mm-hmm. of in, in the wind. Um, and so I, a lot of the clients, previous clients, took their time. They were processing. We were all processing. We all have some form of PTSD. Totally. That happened right before Mother's Day. I don't know what it is with weekend holidays <laughs> that people like to do this. But, um, and I really felt the need to, and this is just speaks to who I am as an anxious person. I needed to have this figured out right away. I, the adrenaline hit me so hard. I couldn't sleep. I was like making my query lists. I was doing my outreach to people, friends, their agents, you know, do you like your agent? What do you think? Um, and I just felt the need to make the decision fast. First of all, because my family just couldn't stand me anymore because (laughs) it was a lot of like, you know, Sturm and Drang around here and wringing my hands and, you know, all of that, you know, traipsing up and down the floors, Lady Macbething and almost um, <laughs> that they were just kind of relieved when I just decided to just make decisions pretty quickly. I didn't want to wait. I didn't want to. I just for me, for again, managing my own anxiety was like, I need to have this settled. I need to yeah. find a way to settle this uh, and I need to be working on it. Whereas other clients were like, I need to step back. I don't want to think about it. And I'm like, that's good. We were all support. We had this slack. We were all very supportive. And I think that's what I would recommend highly is um, if this happens, you find your community. It's a very normal thing to happen to lose your agent, to have your agent leave their agency and maybe not take you with. And it hurts. It all hurts, of course. And it's all not personal, except it is because <laughs> right. it personally right. affects you. Right. Um, but it's, it's your a, livelihood, but, right? It's your livelihood. It's so much of our egos, our sense of self, for better or for worse, even though we shouldn't put that in there. It's in there. Um, and it can be a very difficult thing to be the brave one who leaves, you know, who isn't left, who maybe suffers a relationship that isn't working because you're scared to leave. And that's a very, I never, you know, I never got to the point where I need to take that step, but I knew a lot of people who did. And it was a very brave step for them to take because then you've got to start all over again. And that's difficult. Um, so I think two takeaways are it happens. It sucks that it happens, but it does. You find your community who have been through it, either with the current agent or with, you know, just in general, you, you learn about what they're going through, um, you support each other. And that's what we did, uh, on our Slack. And also we were pretty public about it. Um, which to some degree, you know, would maybe people would say is not recommended. This could really hurt you. And I'm just kind of tired of people covering up not great behavior. And again, it's not, I know business decisions are made, 
but how it was done was really the major problem with what happened to all of us. So those are things that I are my big takeaways from having four being on my fourth agent. And now, and I want to, I'm interested in pulling apart what you mean when you say um, you wanted to have it resolved. So you, you said you, you made query lists, you moved very quickly into um, cold querying new agents, or was there a result? Uh, was um, did anything result of how from how public you were? About, oh, you know, being dropped. To and, some de- and, yeah, and, to some degree for sure, Jordan's because being away. public with it may made agents say, "My query box is open to you." If I'm normally closed, like you know that, and we were we were sort of collecting those responses in in our Slack to be like, "Here are some resources." Um, so I think that definitely helped because we had, we had people we could go to right away instead of just starting all over again. Um, and so for me, there was some cold querying that was done and they were usually recommended agents from friends who were like, let me talk to you about my agent. Um, I recommend I'll give them the heads up that you're going to query. And, uh, so that's, I mean, I, like I said, I did want to move because I could have, Definitely could have waited to see where Jordan ended up because she's now with Jabberwocky and very happy and supported. And a lot of her clients have are there to have gone over. A lot of my former agent mates uh, have followed her, her there. Very happy. I, that took a, you know, for me, because I think that got resolved fairly recently because of how things are going to move. I'm anxious and I'm impatient and they go together. And yeah. I just knew that I was going to have a hard time waiting to see how things shook out. Um, it hurt to leave Jordan. It was a tough call when I called her on the phone to tell her. Um, but we have maintained uh, a connection. Uh, I'm so grateful for all of her support. All the books I have coming out in the next two years are directly because she never gave up on them. Um, particularly my two very difficult topic books, one about the pandemic and one about lockdown drills, uh, which is a picture book. So very difficult topic in a picture book. Um, She was a huge champion. Uh, But yeah, so Josh, I felt the need to move fast because I just couldn't stand the uncertainty. And that's a very personal thing. Yeah. And, and I guess this is a very specific question that I think, I think I know the answer to, but, you know, there must have been for all of you who were in a Slack together, um, some form of contact with Jordan to make sense of this. But there also must have been a degree of necessary separation but with Jordan as some of the sort of legalities or technicalities of, yeah. of the separation were, were worked out. It was, I don't know from Jordan's end what she was constrained by, but I'm sure there was some constraints. And I think the problem was when we all got that email, like we weren't getting it from Jordan. Jordan wasn't the one to tell us because maybe she hadn't been allowed to because she was cut off from email right away. She was processing that too, obviously processing the fact that we were processing it. And yes, after some time, we, a few of us who had texted her started to get responses back. We were all getting the same response initially and then there was a little bit more of a trickle, but not like, again, because as you said, the legalities, some of us were in contact with her. Um, some of us more than others were like, I'm just going to talk to her. I'm, I'm going to call her and could get more information and that we shared very privately. Uh, but again, very much like it wasn't like there was some major thing that we didn't know about. 
it was a very confusing time and it was supposedly a money decision. Mm-hmm. Again, companies have rights to make that decision. It's just how you handle it. And so, yes, there was some contact. And at some point, uh, clients, we were aware that she was finally at a point where she was going to be talking to other agencies, interviewing with them, doing her research and that. So I, we were all give, being given sort of incremental updates along the way and like sharing that information within the Slack and, you know, supporting each other's decisions to not wait, to, you know, to go query and to uh, deal with offers and stuff like that. So, yeah, there was some communication, but it couldn't be totally full. I, I did manage to talk to Jordan kind of in a very personal way um, had, which I was in tears over because, and I think I, I don't know if I made her cry. I, cause I told her that my littlest, um, <laughs> I got the email. We were watching a Warriors game, a Golden State Warriors yeah. playoff game. We ended up losing the game. Mark, my husband will never forget the Warriors <laughs> lost because of that. <laughs> That's what we'll say. Um, we were in the, we were watching this game and, uh, I got this email at 10 o'clock at night, uh, Pacific time. And told my family Jordan got fired and then immediately went to the back room, stopped watching the game, reached out to all of the clients that I could and said, let's all get on a Zoom. We ended up being on a Zoom crying and whatevering until like one o'clock in the morning. Um, But my youngest kid um, burst into tears when he heard that Jordan had been fired. And when I told Jordan that, she was just like, I love that kid. When I meet him, finally, I'm going to hug him so hard. And um, so, yeah, I did have some, I got to have some personal conversations with her, which wasn't me saying, what are your next steps? What's happening with you? Just, it was sort of like, are you okay? How are you? And she was like, how are you guys? Yeah, for sure. So yeah. And which was nice to be able to do that. Um, But it was, it was tough. I mean, it was really tough. I mean, you were with her for long enough. I mean, and she knows your kids. Like, that's like family, right? So, I mean, she knows my kids in the sense that, that she's never met like, them, but she knew that my kids right. were very much in my books and, you know, yeah. stuff that I've, I'll say on Twitter. She's always been like, both your boys are such poets. I, I've got to meet them someday. We always joke that Jordan would end up representing their literary and artistic works Aww. in the future. So, which still could oh happen. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we were with each other because, uh, I mean, it's, I really cannot keep track of years. Because I think with Joe, I signed with New Leaf in 2016, 2016, 2017, then moved with to over to Jordan in 2018. So, yeah, five years. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a very comfortable, good relationship. And I mean, that is the thing about this industry. Like, it's so weird in a lot of ways, but it, the, that break, you know, from somebody that you're working with, you have this business relationship and it's supposed to be business, but I mean, it's obviously, of course, it's going to be personal also. So when you move on from somebody, I mean, yeah, it's a business decision, but you've got this personal relationship that you're, you know, very much trying to sort of like protect or manage or you know separate from and it's kind of impossible like the business is heartbreaking like across the board it just like at every aspect you know it's just it's really hard and also it's very strange in a way that's like i can't just you can't just leave your agent and like have another one lined up that's not how this works it's like you leave an agent and then you've got this like waiting period and then you can query and then it's like you know it's like all these weirdo steps and like a lot of like veiled information like you're saying you know like 
Uh, also, you know, you mentioned like you're kind of sick of all of the like secrecy and the, you know, don't talk yeah. about this and don't do that and don't do what it's like. Yeah. Like, can we please like talk about more of this? Because like, yeah, it happens. Like the agent leaves or the agency gets, you know, new management or somebody gets fired or you leave your agent or whatever it is. It's like this happens and it's yeah. okay. Like it's, it's okay. And there are other people that this situation has happened to. So like, you know, you're, Yeah. I just wanted to make a note of that real quick because anybody yeah. who's listening, you know, like it's, it's okay. Like this business is weird, but somebody else has been through it. So it's weird and it's, it's borderline dysfunctional compared to other industries, except <laughs> yes. that I would argue that other industries are plenty dysfunctional, you know, academics, all of that can be very, very uh, toxic and dysfunctional. But yeah, I, the shame that I felt from that first agent loss, um, I don't want anyone to ever feel that way because it does happen. I just didn't know it at the time. And I've learned, you know, I've learned, I mean, your editors leave, your editors get fired, your editors move, you know, places, they move jobs, they leave publishing. I had like, for my first book, I had like, I think I had four editors by the time that published. So, you know, that, and that's kind of stressful. Luckily it didn't start happening until after we were through the editing stage, but the person who acquired it from the slush pile like she loved that book so much um and she was happy when it was published but like it was different than like being with her all the way because again yeah. totally pulled from the slush pile sent me an email and was like is this still available and um and she was just so on board with that very weird book of mine um that it was too bad that you know she moved jobs but and then I had so it wasn't four maybe it was only three I don't know anyway so yeah it happens no, it, it was, was enough. It was enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, my, my, I guess my observation all this of all this, to, uh, speaking specifically to your point around, uh, hey, you know, I've got some anxiety. I want to get this resolved yeah. um, and, and land at another agency. There's a degree of, uh, you know, th- this is this is your livelihood. This is your career. This is your way and most people's way into traditional publishing. Um by having an agent and no agent means very very little or very much much lower chance of success in continuing your career so i get it from that perspective but yeah i guess i guess the 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 this is my day job template falls apart when you think about those um the the legalities that like the uh the time between writing something and having having it be sold or the fact that you know for presumably some time there's some continued overlap with Jordan and Jennifer, your new agent, um, as you work through sort of the backlog of, of things that are in the process of being right. sold and new, new things that you're writing. So I'm just I'm, I'm comparing sort of the experience that people will have that I would have as somebody who writes on the side has a day job. Um, I, like I can go find another day job if I really want to. Employer, if you're listening, I'm not going to do that. I'm a lifer where I am. But um, but but that's. Um, I guess that's that's my reaction there is that it's a day job, but it operates differently from most day it, jobs for people who want to don't want to treat I it think as it a does career. And it doesn't because you know you can lose your day job, right? And yes, you can go get another one, but you could you still will go through that interview process of being like, please hire me, which is not too different from the querying process with an agent of kind of like, please hire me, except that technically you're hiring them because you know the agent is your essentially working for you. Please let's partner. Exactly. Right. Yeah, it's a exactly. very, it's, it's very weird, but it, it's, there's parallels and then there's exact opposites for sure in, in comparing the two. 
But um, I think it's because this industry, Kidlit in particular, is so tough to have an agent, especially if you're a text-only uh, picture book writer. Um, it's so tough to find an agent. And, and then it, so if you lose the agent for whatever reason, it, it's, it just feels that much harder again. And we're constantly getting the doom and gloom about how tough the industry is getting and how it's worse than before. And basically now it feels like there's no categories that are easy to write for or sell to. Um, and I think that's where that comes in is this industry is just so up and down and back and forth and TikTok, book talk, whatever, and books being banned, making it harder to sell into the school library market and all of that, that I think it just makes it so much more fraught when you are without an agent. Yeah. Yeah. I think though, wasn't it you who recently said on discord stuff, you were like that, yes, it's hard, but the industry has these ups and downs. So like, just, you know, like stay the course and like, it'll yeah. come back around like things they do. It's cyclical. You know, it's I used to work in publishing. So my actual day job was an editorial in Boston um, for little Brown. And not much it was, of course. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how we did. When did you have time for this career? <laughs> yeah, what? that was my that was my day job. It was when I got laid off from there that I went to culinary school before we moved out here for my husband's first postdoc, and then we never left here. But um, so yeah, I worked in editorial. So at the time, Time Warner was in the process, or had been in the process, or it was still that's still coming over of buying Little Brown or whatever happened, acquiring, buying whatever. While I was there, AOL then bought Time Warner or something, and they kept assuring us, we're not going to close the Boston office because they had a New York office too. We're never going to close the Boston office. That's the original office. That's the historic office dating back to the 1800s, whatever. Um, Spoiler alert, they closed the Boston (laughs) office. (laughs) They offered us the, some of us, the potential to move with them, but it, at least within my imprint, which was not Kidlet. I wanted to work in Kidlet, but I never, I would interview for Kidlet all the time in Boston. Houghton Mifflin was another one I used to do a lot. I would do a temp, they would have a temp pool before I got a, a full-time job where you would just be available to temp for their school, for their um, textbooks, for their, uh, you know, trade. Uh, I was always interviewing, always wanted Kidlet, never got it. Uh, instead worked for an imprint called Bullfinch, which did these big expensive coffee table books that were Stieglitz photographs or Mario Testino photographs or Ansel Adams or they were just these big art books that were like $75, $100 price point. So I worked there. Um, so that was my job, editorial assistant, eventually to um, assistant editor. When they then you know laid off those of us who weren't going to follow, I couldn't follow technically because my husband was in his last year of his PhD. And I mean, we could have made it work, but Little Brown or the company wasn't really acknowledging that a move from Boston to New York was actually going to require me to have a higher paycheck, that there was a cost of living increase. Um, They basically just didn't want us to move with them. So most of us didn't. Um, So what I'm saying is I have seen the industry do this, you know, the purchases, the sales, the closing of imprints. um, And it, it always is very... It's not great, and but I can't say that it's any worse now than it ever has been. I just think there's more of it, and there's more of other horrible stuff happening in the world that does mm-hmm. seem to directly affect it or 
at least make you feel like, can something be happy? Can something be good? Can something be positive? Yes. But I do think it's cyclical. I do think that um, there's an expansion and contraction that happens. There's the, there's the not quite, they don't call them takeovers anymore, but there is like one big company buying another big company. Like a hostile you know, being takeover. Being told by the Department of Justice <laughs> that they can't, mm-hmm. right? You know, being told by the DOJ that you can't actually do that kind of stuff, all of that. So, yeah, I've seen it. I think I think it's it's hard not to get caught up in the doom and gloom. Mm. But if there's anything you can do not to get caught up on it and feel like it's futile. Um, I've been through points in my career in which I was like, this is no longer making me happy. I'm going to I'm done with Kidlet. I'm done with publishing. I'm walking away. And. I was very certain of that one year, and what I did instead was take a very long break. Jordan, I think, was on maternity leave, so it made it very easy. I had nothing on sub, really. I didn't have to worry about hearing from anybody or anything, checking my inbox. Very emphatically, was not going to write anything, wasn't going to try to write, wasn't going to listen to any publishing podcast, just completely unplugged. Um, went on lots and lots of hikes listening to podcasts that had nothing to do with that. Mm. And guess what? I needed the break. I needed a hard break. And as much as I was like, I'm not writing anything new, my brain was like, yeah, you are. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it right here. I'm in the back brain here. And I would come home from my hikes and I would write stuff on Post-its and be like, this isn't really writing. Not at my computer. This is just right. pretend. Doesn't count. Yeah. Um, it doesn't count. Doesn't no, count. It's just... And for the for the listening audience, there are a ton of Post-its. Like, so right many Post-its. Yeah. Those don't count, though. Don't worry about it. There we go. They don't count. They don't count. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of them did become a book. A couple of them are books in progress um, that I'm still working on. But it, but it felt really good to have that hard break because I really needed it. So it's okay to take those breaks. It's okay to be discouraged and want to walk away. Walk away. That's okay. You can always walk back. Yeah. You know? It's, yeah. And close the door all the yeah, way. Yeah, unless you really, really things. want to. And that's right. fine. And maybe it's, a, maybe it's a month's break. Maybe it's week's break. Maybe it's a couple of years. It's okay to do that. And in fact, I think for some of us, it's very necessary to do that if it gets to be too much. What, um, I, I love the notion of taking a break because I take big breaks in between writing anything <laughs> and then it all comes out at once. Is there anything that's been announced that came from that break? I'm sure there has. Oh my gosh. Uh, is there anything that's been announced that came from that particular break? No. <laughs> no, because two... <laughs> <laughs> Um, My really encouraging point fell apart. (laughs) And in fact, there's nothing that's on sub that came from that break. There are a couple of things that came from that break. Well, okay, let me let me give a good perspective. There are two things that came from that break that went on sub and and died on sub. But I will tell you this. I was totally fine with it for the first time ever. I think there was a more of a detachment. I was like, if this works, great. If not. I'll move on. I'm fine. I'll write again. I'll write something else. I'm not, I liked what I wrote, but I also was not down in the dumps completely when I got passes, passes, passes. Mm. Um, Now that might have something to do with the fact that after that break happened and Jordan came back from maternity leave, we sold two books within, within, it was crazy. They, They happened within a week of each other because they were both on sub. It was my verse novel and my lockdown drill book. My lockdown drill book was years old. We had tried putting on sub. People didn't like the topic. Too scared. Don't want to do it. <laughs> right. We pulled it from sub because um, because of the pandemic and it, everybody was already feeling depressed enough. And then Jordan wanted to try it again with with a couple of editors, very specific editors that she that were kind of new to wanting to acquire s- similar stuff. 
And at the same time, uh, Hummingbird Season, my first novel about distance learning in the pandemic, had been on sub for, it was about a year and a half before that one got acquired. So those were two works that were a couple years old to some degree. Mm-hmm. And so they, so I think those two books being acquired is what made me finally realize I'm going to be okay. Even if my like next five books don't get acquired, mm-hmm. I feel safe. I feel steady i feel like i'm doing the right thing maybe it's because they were very very important books like like if hummingbird season hadn't been acquired by alex at bloomsbury who i just adore as an editor she's she's also got my zombie book picture book oh i cannot Uh, wait for that i'm so excited well and that's another years long that book was written many years many i mean like in 2018 and also went on sub and got passed 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 and that's actually did send me into kind of a dumps thing when that one got passed on but we decided to see if Alex would like it. Alex liked it, so Alex has it. Um, and I love working with her on both uh, verse novels and on that particular picture book. She's amazing. So what was my point? So those were years-long books that got sold, so they weren't recent works. They you were, were saying you felt steady. You felt, like, safe I felt, when those I got felt, sold. I, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. when, those, when the Hummingbird season got sold, because that was so very personal to me and my family and what we went through... Um, and I just felt very much this need to show and for us not to forget what kids went through and how tough it was on parents, kids, and teachers. Um, I wanted to honor those children, those teachers, those parents. And I just felt it would literally break my heart if it didn't sell. And maybe that was when I was going to walk away from publishing at least for some time, but it sold. And then after that, I just felt a lot better about being on sub and, I, I still hate the waiting. I still hate waiting forever for things, but um, it no longer sends me into a funk when I get a pass a day or something like that. And it's either due to the break or it's due to how long I've been doing this or some sort of detachment has, you know, set in. Well, and can we just, so, okay, so novel and verse, right? That is such a, like that specific kind of writing really lends itself to very intense, very emotional, very like raw writing. So if you're going to do it well, you have to really commit and you have to put yourself on the page. Um, I started writing a novel in verse. I have, you know, first draft, whatever, but it is the only reason I'm writing novel in verse, because it's not like I have a background in this, or I've been like writing a bunch of them. It's this only that structure seemed right for this specific topic. It's very personal to me. It's very, um, this book is the most important thing I've ever written in my life because it's about me and my friends and how I grew up and, you know, the heartbreak of all of it. And so if it, if it goes out and doesn't do well, you know, that will break me. But if it goes out and it sells, like you're saying with hummingbird season, right? Like, I feel like, yes, if it's sold, I would also feel like, okay, anything else that goes out and doesn't make it. I'm okay with that. I don't, I don't care as much, right? Like I'm not as invested because some of those manuscripts, that's how you feel. And you have to, you have to feel that way in order for them to come out and to be good in order for them to connect with other people. Right. It's such a risk. It's such a risk, but you have to get there. Yep. And you know, I have always felt there has to be something of you in whatever book you're writing picture yeah, book verse totally. whatever it makes it more real to people reading it right so for like league of picky eaters 
very real situations with some of my kids are in there. Uh, real dialogue for my kids is in there because it. I felt like it brought more of that. It sounded real to kids then, to kids who were reading it. Like it wasn't an adult trying to pretend. I was connecting with my own history of friendships or something like that with what I've seen my kids go through. I worry as they get older that I'm going to lose that connection and I'm not ready to write YA even though my oldest just started high school because they've <laughs> been my sources of inspiration. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you do, and you can feel those books that have that heart. You know, when they always say the heart of your story, like mm -hmm. you do put yourselves into it. Now, that's speaking as someone who doesn't generally write the funny books. Now, the zombie book has nothing like that. I mean, that is not inspired <laughs> by real life events. Um, we don't really weird because the we premise. don't have pet brains. Right? <laughs> Seems like There's it would. <laughs> nothing about letting a pet go wild and then having it come back home again. None of that. Um, I think I just had this idea that I was like, there's so many zombie books. No one's tried this particular take on it, yeah. you know? And so that's a funnier book for me. And that's not saying funny books can't have heart because they can and they do. But I think a lot of other funny books are just like slapdash, kooky. That's not so much me at this stage. I, I try to write that way. I think it comes out forced at times. I'm not entirely sure if it works. Um, although recently I've dug into some old picture books and I've pulled out ones that I was like, definitely thought these were dead. And I traded them um, back and forth with Dev Petty. And she's like, no, these are funny. Do you like writing like this? I'm like, yeah, but I just never got the idea that it was working. And she's, you know, we're, you know, reviewing each other's manuscripts and giving advice. And so she's like helping me. And she's also validating, like, I like this. It's wacky. It's weird. Yes. Yeah. But I do like it. Here's some suggestions. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I can find that. Yeah, right. Awesome. I mean, she's hilarious. Just put those aside. That's my that's my niche. You stay in your lane. <laughs> right. Steph. That's weird. Let me have my thing. Stay in no, your own what, lane. What's occurring to me as we're that yeah. What's <laughs> occurring to me is uh, bringing us full circle. Uh, I think maybe I do have some uh, some of that third point about uh, Spock and Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> Um, because that <laughs> the emotional the emotional personal connection is something that I really struggle with writing and, and maybe that's maybe I need someone to open me up. Well, well I always I like the yeah. silly. I guess my usually my recommendation is you're a dad and you see what your kids are going through or you have your own memories of what you went through in certain situations and you can remember how you felt maybe you can remember how you felt at the time if you can't you, you know how your kids are feeling. And that for me, like if you're a teacher, if you're kid adjacent, it makes it easier. I don't know how people do it who aren't kid adjacent. Mm -hmm. People, clearly people do it. I mean, it can be done. I just, I think I've just pulled so much. I'm such a vampire with my, with my kids experiences <laughs> that, um, you know, I'm just sort of sucking their lifeblood and, and, and putting it into stories and hoping it resonates, assuming it'll resonate with other kids. Well, this is okay. So I, I know we've already had you for an hour, but like, I feel like I have so much to talk with you about. So I just, I just I want to make, <laughs> okay, great. I, <laughs> I want to make a few more points. There are several things I want to talk about still. So, okay. First, I wanted to make the connection between, um, that you are the third sister of Betsy and Kate. I love, <laughs> I love that. So I just want to sort of pull like put this together. Here's where I, the cross section is for me. So you said, one of your manuscripts was pulled out of the slush pile and she thought it was weird and she loved it, right? So 
weird is also very similar to funny in the way that Betsy describes it. Like, because funny is way more subjective, right? Than being sad. Those are objective feelings, but funny and also weird. I feel like weird is also objective. It's like, or sorry, subjective. So not everybody likes the same weird stuff. So if you are trying to write like weird, quirky, and funny, like that is all very, very subjective. So like you have to hit those right notes with the right person at the right time, with the right agent, the right editor. It's like, that is impossibly hard. So And they have to be in the right mood. Yes. Honestly, I do think I can be in a mood where I'm reading something and I'm like, I this this is not funny and it bugs me. It actually <laughs> I actually feel personally offended. And that could just be my mood. So I think being an editor or an agent is so tough. And actually for me it made me not want to do I, I've done several mentorships, but I'm always scared that I'll have nothing to give back in terms of what if I'm what if I can't, what if I just don't like what they're writing and I don't know how to help them or I, I don't know how to fix it. Like I, I have, that's where my, a lot of my, um, uh, imposter syndrome lies, but I do think it would be so hard to be an agent or an editor because, and again, they get a lot of stuff. So fine. They can cycle it through, but, um, you can send an editor something one year that they didn't like. And then you send it to them a couple of years later and they're like, how come I've never seen this before? And it's like, <laughs> right. <laughs> they did. Right. It just, it just is very, that's, it's, some, so be, it's all subjective yeah. because of that. Some, some conversations encourage me to dive into the query trenches. And I think parts of this conversation encourage me to do that. But the, the notion that, that it is, or the realization or reminder that it is actually possible for me to submit something that's what I think is funny and quirky to an agent and have them go, my God, not only is this bad, but I am offended by it. Yeah, like, get out. <laughs> Terrifies Just... me back, <laughs> back well, into my the, hole. I took the offensiveness a bit too far. Let's say as a, as a writer, I think as more of a writer, I might be quote unquote offended by the fact that something got published, which I'm like, this is, you know, we all have our opinions about what we yes. think is good or not. How dare this see it? Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. How dare they have a livelihood? Yeah, um, Right. But I think that can also come to come. What can come into play is it's very hard for women. Um, it's very hard for marginalized communities who are writers to be to be allowed to be funny. Totally, um, it's yeah. it is. I'm sorry, Josh. It is usually the white males who get to be uh, funny, and or who are seen as funny, or whose humor is. Ta- I don't even know what, how to even part. There's plenty of funny women. There's plenty of funny picture books. They're all out there. But I do feel like it. It can be a harder sell for a woman writing about poop. Or fart jokes, which is, by the way, not my brand of humor, but like I do see that it's probably harder for women to do that, uh, or at least be taken, <laughs> quote unquote, be taken seriously. seriously. Yeah, right. You know? I was just thinking yeah. that about yeah about a ridiculous topic. Taken seriously and t- taken seriously with their unseriousness, but but then also exactly. have that not be you know something that's so like girl focused. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Or have it be like girls aren't allowed to talk about that or women are allowed to talk about that. But I would say, Josh, just in terms of querying, like any day, the same agent can feel very differently, I think, about the same manuscript. I I think it's very affected by, again, I I don't ever think anything should die. You just, I was going to say this to you, Brenna, the um, novel in verse, like I totally get it, but it took a year and a half. And it was several, it wasn't so much several rounds as we just kept adding editors to the list. Mm. And I think it maybe got, went out to 30 plus eventually. That's what our, you know, final tally was. And it was the last editor that we sent to who was the one who acquired it. Even though there were some who had never responded. Um, So I would say I would never give up on a manuscript like that. 
I would understand the disappointment that comes if you're on sub with it uh, and it gets rejected. But I would also not say that doesn't mean in a couple of years you don't turn into a zombie, literally zombie it from the dead and it, it, it can still happen. Totally. Yeah, totally. I think, you know what, I'm at the phase right now where I have it, like I have it done enough and polished enough, mm -hmm. but I'm kind of terrified to see it through because I'm like, well, then I have a whole thing that I can put out into the world. And what if, you know, what if the world doesn't think it's as great as I do or my critique partners? That's or Hannah Sawyer, yeah. God bless her. She is so amazing and so sweet and she's won so many awards. And I got a critique from her through a CBWI. And I will say it was one page and one page of novel and verse. Are you kidding me? It was like 40 words or something, right? Because it's like, yeah. there's so much white space. I'm like, how can she critique this? How, what is she going to say? Like, there's not, there's nothing here. Right. Right. And she was so, I don't know. I just can't even put into words, like how much her critique meant to me and how kind she was. Cause it's not that there were no criticisms there were, but she was so kind and it just, it felt like that is the way you give feedback. Like it made me feel like, it my like what I said matters and she got that and she had some you know some ways to make it better but she also was like you know this is this is great and this was really good and here's why and I just and coming from her I mean she it just I don't know be kind be kind in your critiques because you well you know you don't have to be rude hang on there's one no, second I've got a, a I've got a neurotic cat who needs to be let out because if I don't <laughs> I let him out hear. of my room I can hear. he's going to pee somewhere and he's got this thing where he needs to be near me but also to get attention <laughs> So hang on, I gotta protect my furniture. Okay, okay. Oh, no, 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 It's interesting. I'm just gonna leave that ambient sound. Amazing. Sorry. No, it's fine. It's not cats. It's children. I was I was gonna put some. Yeah, I was going to put some filler in there and talk about, uh, you know, the, the art of giving feedback, which is a very precise art. But the but the the shushing and the, the moving of the cat. Is <laughs> I, he has really been. I mean, poor thing. He was a feral that I rescued from a parking lot that I found him, and he was all Aww. sick, eyes completely sealed shut with conjunctivitis. Aww. And then after he got rehabbed by the Humane Society, like I wasn't going to adopt him. We already had two cats, and one was dying of lung cancer, and um, but they couldn't. He was too feral. He he was not friendly. He was not, um, he wasn't like aggressive, but he just was a very not happy cat, really scared. And they said, well, we can't adopt him out, so we're going to have to put him down. And I was like, well, I'm not going to let that happen. So we adopted him. Uh, and, but yeah. we have had now 10 years, 12 years of him inappropriately peeing uh, <laughs> because of just if he doesn't get his own way, if he doesn't get the food, if he doesn't get, I don't, we don't, we've never been able to figure, he's got a thyroid condition that's being treated, Okay. but that's not the extent of it. So he's just got issues. He's just <laughs> neurotic beyond belief. Very you, sweet cat, but if neurotic. we need to draw, if we need to draw any conclusions from this entire conversation, I think it's that credit to your kids who may listen to this, but your life has left you with ample fodder <laughs> For all future books, oh including God. your uh, sometimes incontinent or in inappropriate uh, sub uh, post feral cat. Yeah, I won't even talk about the other cat who has started to develop her own brand of issues that are oh are not. It's, I'm, I, I don't know. I do not want to gross people out, but what she does is not appropriate. But it's also directly related to the fact that the cat, the other cat, uh, gets bullied by her and therefore becomes more neurotic. 
and they have to be separated at oh night. Gosh. And there's just there's just issues. But yes, no, I have a lot of cat fodder. I just you know, I, I, it's just hard to sell cat fodder because there's a lot of cat fodder out there already. Um, but yes, totally. Oh my gosh, it's hard so. to write cat fodder because you're cleaning up cat fodder a lot of the time in your own home. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> And again, it will take me into the poop and pee territory of writing, which, you know, may or may not work for some people. Right. right. Including yourself. So, I mean, you might not want to exactly. even write about that. Um, okay. But I'm sorry, okay. Josh, you were going to talk about critiques. Oh, was the I? Art of, the art it's of... been long enough. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're just reinforcing the point of, of being yeah. kind with critiques. I've talked about this before, but I, I'm a, I'm a 10 year member of Toastmasters. And one of the biggest things that I've given and Toastmasters being for people who aren't aware, it's a, it's a corporate corporate, but also community, um, like public speaking and leadership, um, organization. And I've given dozens of speeches and given tons of evaluations and yeah that's one of the most important concepts that i've gotten from that is like if you've got feedback to give someone soften it don't manipulate them but soften it with the things that are going right yes um and and use the feedback at, not as you know something is going wrong but as here is how this can be the best it can possibly be from my perspective and always couch it in you know this is my perspective only take or yeah. leave whatever is useful or not useful yeah i always like to make sure that when i'm saying what could be changed or maybe you could think about doing it this another way is also to always call out the good like i like this i love this this is super funny um because you need that encouragement you know it's the same yeah. it's the compliment sandwich almost you know with a critique it's the same thing like yep. you should be calling out not just the things that you find that should be fixed or changed or you don't like but you should definitely be calling out the stuff that is funny that is beautiful that is going well that's a great word choice you know never thought of it like that all of that is important to keeping us all of us going mm -hmm. and that goes for i think how you interact with your agent or editor um my editors i've been lucky enough that they do constantly call out the good stuff as well as the stuff that they think we should change or fix or move mm -hmm. or whatever um, because you like hearing that. Um, it's great. I hear it from proofreaders too sometimes. They're like, they're doing all the stuff because they're the proofreaders and they're amazing at their jobs. And But it's a lot of changes. But then at the end, I had a proofreader be like, about Hummingbird Season, she's like, this was just a very moving uh, collection of poems. I, I just want to tell you that. And I was like, oh, thank you. Yeah, right. You said, <laughs> stay in your lane. <laughs> Talk, tell me about commas and periods. <laughs> Um, okay, so the last thing I want to ask you about before we get to Dead Manuscript Society, because I really want to hear yes. what you have, but I wanted to talk really quick about, because um, you and Tara were talking on Twitter about how you get together and you have these sessions, and I would love so to this hear leads all right, about this it. This leads right into my Dead Manuscript, okay, great. or what you guys called it. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so the story of this is that I have a book coming out next month in a few weeks, uh, September 5th, What is Hope? Uh, put out by Nancy Paulson and illustrated uh, by Kelsey Bazell. And so when I was in the literal, just down in the dumps of, of writing and I had gotten some rejections on a, actually a cat manuscript that I really had a lot of hope for <laughs> and it didn't happen. And the zombie book didn't happen around the same time. And I was just really, really like, how do you get over how? And I, I went on to Twitter and I said, okay, authors, how do we get past this? How do we find our creativity again when we're so down? Like mm. what, how does that even work when you just are sort of like, why should I even write anything if it's just going to get rejected? So I was getting, you know, people like, oh, I do this or I do this, I do this. Fine. So we were talking about it. 
And then I was like, I need to do something new. And I approached Tara. I always, I always, because I have friends who are Tara and friends that are Tara. Whenever I ask Tara Hannon this, she's like, I don't care either way. And I'm like, okay, so I will never know. I, never, I just <laughs> can't keep it straight. Um, but Tara, so I had actually, because she was represented by Jordan as well. So I first approached Jordan and said, would this be weird? But like, what if, it just seems like it'd be kind of fun to mess around together to have a play date where like I write something and maybe if Tara's bored or like looking for some additional creative spark, you know, she could illustrate it. And awesome. Jordan was like, yeah, you guys should do that. It's fine. So I wanted to write a story about a character who had lost their hope and needed to go looking for it. And where were they going to find it? So my character, a platypus, an adorable platypus, as you'll see, um, goes looking for, and I want it to be in places that you don't usually think of, you know, the, like the sort of like stereotypical, you know, hope is a new crocus after, you know, a hard winter. Yeah. So it's like thinking of places where you might need hope. And one of them was like, did she leave it when she was treasure hunting with this friend? Because you need hope, right? You, you hope to find treasure. Did she lose it in the trees when she was stargazing with her bird friend? Because you need hope if you are hoping to wish upon a star, right? Oh, smart. All I love that. Yeah. I've lost hope. So then that turned into me kind of looking around the world and finding other places that are not the usual places. And it just struck me with the California poppies that are constantly around us. I had one in a glass um, in, in water that my kid, my child had given to me and how it opened and closed, you know, based on morning or night and how hopeful it is for a flower to be cut off from the outside because no longer connected to the ground in a window where they're getting insufficient light, but it's still always hopeful when they open. So that became the line, hope is a poppy awake with the sun or they, or that wakes with the sun. I can't remember which one it is. And then because I'm a runner, I had one that was um, hope is a hill you attack on a run. Meaning like when you get to a hill, you have to, you need hope when you want to go up it. You're like, I, got, I hope I get to the top without dying. So I was looking around for all these kinds of places and it became a collection uh, in a very natural way on Twitter of couplets and that were completely disconnected except that they were about hope. And that's where Christy Everington, another Jordan client, stepped in and was like, Stephanie, this is a picture book. You know this is a picture book, right? And I was like, no, it's not. And she's like, it's a picture book. Have you sent it to Jordan? You need to send it to Jordan. I'm like, I'm not going to send it to Jordan. She's like, you're going to send it to Jordan. I'm going to read it. You're going to send it to Jordan. So I did collect them. But at the same time, that was because I was working on this other thing with Tara. And so Tara was handing back and forth my manuscript with line art. She had a full-on character development illustration, which is gorgeous. And I love it. And I still... First of all, we're finally going to show it publicly on Twitter um, in conjunction with the podcast, but Ooh. also with the fact that hope is coming out. And this is the story behind me almost completely losing all of my hope, never writing again, selling this book with the help of two agent mates to whom the book is dedicated. I can't remember if that's a secret. I can't remember if I told them that. I may have told them. Um, <laughs> it won't be by the time this airs. Amazing. Okay. So they were instrumental. This sort of camaraderie, this sort of supportive environment but so Tara did these illustrations and in going back and forth, it actually really helped me refine my text to like what I didn't need anymore because she had drawn it. So I could just take that out. Like it was there. It so, it's so very hard to do when you're a text only writer, of course. Um, but it was a really fun and lovely way to, to just engage in creativity with a, 
project that may, you weren't walking into it thinking it was definitely going to go somewhere. Um, but then Hope did. Like, what is Hope did? It was one of those, like, sent it to Nancy Paulson, and Jordan could tell within 30 minutes of her reading it, she had an offer sent back. Now, it had already been rejected, by the way, by many others. So, wow. yeah, but it was like, that was that one time that that's happened to me. One time. Uh, and it's just sort of the most unlikely uh, situation of how that book even came about, unless you want to see it as also like the most likely, but I was literally not wanting to ever write again or feeling like it was pointless, looking for hope, finding it with these two friends of mine in two different manuscripts. And then it, you know, that happened. Oh my God. I love, I love all of that. And it comes out in two weeks. Is that what you said? Uh, is it two? I don't know what date is today. It comes out September fifth. Is that two weeks? September fifth. Okay. Is it two it's or like three weeks? two and a half or something. Yeah. Something okay. Like that. Yeah. It was some time ago, awesome. you guys. This is the future. <laughs> That's true. That's right. That's, That's right. So whenever this is, the book is probably out and you know available. It's doing wherever great. Books are sold. Steph's back on the New York Times. <laughs> yes. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Oh boy, yeah. I love all of that and I cannot wait to have Tara on the podcast because I chatted with her about coming on also and I was like, dude, I because I love all of her stuff. It's so her stuff is so cute. It's just like so fun and so like like magical. I don't it's like very inspiring to look at. I just yeah, it was I was like, Can you come on the show please? So so yeah, I can't wait to talk to her. Moratorium on future Terras after after this Tara. (laughs) Our third. Our third Tara. Or Tara. Right, right. Um, okay, do you want to read your dead manuscript? I'm so excited. Yes. So I'm going to read the manuscript that Tara and I basically developed together. Um, and I will yes. read it from my Word document. I don't think, I guess I could, probably can't share the illustrations with you we, guys at this point. We could share them though. Yeah, like along with the podcast, like we could put them in the show Exactly. Notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I will be putting them on Twitter. Um, awesome. Okay, so... I haven't read this aloud, so it may end up being bumpy. No problem. Um, Okay, so this is what you know. Okay, platypus is a platypus. I think I actually gave her a name. I thought her name was Fiona, but anyway. Ooh, I like that. Um, In fact, let me look at the one that actually I gave to Tara because... um, Okay, maybe I never used her name. It was hard to remember which was the most recent uh, version, even though I have dates there. Um, So what you need to know is that the platypus um, wears glasses. That's just something you need to know because it's part of the story. I just won't ruin it. Um, Okay. Here we go. It's either called Finding Hope, Looking for Hope, or Platypus Loses Hope. Platypus brought her hope with her wherever she went. She brought her hope when she climbed the tallest tree with Dove. Together, they spent long nights watching and wondering if they would finally be able to wish on shooting, shooting stars. She brought her hope when she and Turtle were trying out a new and complicated eclair recipe. And she brought her hope to the garden when she coaxed up the first crocuses after a dark, cold winter. But one morning, Platypus realized that her hope was gone, and she couldn't remember when she'd last had it. She knew she had it when she broke out in a purple rash after pruning the blackberry bush and had to stay in bed for the itchiest week ever. And when she and her friends waited for the thunderstorms to blow over so they could have their annual annual bog slog jamboree, she definitely had her hope then. Platypus started to search for her lost hope. She checked under every petal and leaf in her entire garden. She looked on the slippery rocks in the bog where she sometimes went swimming with Turtle. 
And even though it wasn't shooting star season yet, she searched all around and in the tallest tree. Platypus was just about to give up when she remembered the last time she had her hope. Platypus sprinted to the little clearing on the south side of the bog. That's where they held the best bog baking competition. Last week, after eight hot days rolling dough and crashing butter, Platypus entered her gooseberry-filled croissants in the competition. She really wanted to win first prize, so she knew she'd brought her hope with her that day. But then, she didn't win any prize at all. Not first, not second, not even third. And that's when she lost her hope completely. Now, the illustration note here is that Platypus has pushed her glasses up on her head so she could cry. Okay, got it. So now her, so her, you know, her glasses... A little personal been, touch there. Her yeah, glasses right. have been here the whole time. Um, at the clearing, Platypus searched high and low. Platypus's nose prickled with tears, but she couldn't stop looking. If she gave up, her hope would be gone forever. Without her hope, Platypus felt like her eyes were constantly brimming with tears. Without her hope, Platypus didn't know what to look forward to, nor could she see the loveliness around her. Everything was flat and dull and unfocused. Platypus didn't even want to be around her friends. She'd want them to know how she was feeling. After turning over the millionth blade of grass in the clearing, Platypus finally said, I am hopeless at the top of her lungs. Dove happened to be passing by on her mid-morning flight when she heard Platypus, so she circled down to see if she could help. What's the problem, Platypus? asked Dove. I lost something. Something very important, Platypus said between sniffs and hiccups. Maybe I can help you, Dove suggested. I'm very good at finding things because I can see a great deal from up high. Nobody can help me, Platypus said. She trudged back home to her side of the bog. Dove didn't stop her. Dove knew there were times when you had to let your friends be alone for a little bit. That didn't mean Dove didn't want to help, because she did. That evening, Platypus was moping around her house, feeling more hopeless than ever, when she heard a knock at the door. She opened it to find all of her friends on her front step. We're here to help you find whatever you lost, Dove said. And I'm here to play music while we search, Chipmunk said, tuning his banjo. And I thought you might like the rest of my alalaberry crop. I have more than enough for myself, Ground Squirrel said. And I brought over that bag of flour I borrowed from you, Turtle said. Sorry it took so long for me to return it. Platypus's heart swelled at the idea of all her friends coming to help her. Her heart started to believe they would all be able to find her hope again. But before we get to the looking port part, Platypus, my pal, Mole said, I was wondering if you had any of those amazing gooseberry croissants left. I've been thinking about them for days. I'll bet I can make you something even better, Platypus said, throwing her paws around Mole in a spine-cracking hug. At this point, Platypus's glasses slipped back down over her eyes. And with that, Platypus's eyes cleared and she could see the beautiful, smiling, helpful faces of her friends surrounding her. She couldn't wait to look for shooting stars again. She couldn't wait to start baking again. Platypus had found her hope again. Everyone cheered and Platypus bustled off to the kitchen to whip up something for her friends because nothing keeps hope alive like good friends, music, and Olala Berry Cream Puffs. Boy, that's long. <laughs> but oh my gosh, it ties in so much of our conversation. Like what a perfect like that's cap. That's right. I mean, I mean, the glasses, like that's how we started and glasses were in the said menu. It, that is I, so, mean, it's, I kind of forgotten that. Yeah. It's kind of perfect. Like it, and, and so, hope, I mean, that's a running theme also. Like it's going to be okay. I needed hope to be um, something physical in the end. Like it had to be something she literally found instead of like, you know, the feeling of hope. So uh, Tara did draw Plat Fiona with uh, rose colored glasses, you know, that idea of like, you know, her eyes are brimming with tears. Oh her eyes gosh. are blurry. Come on, you know now. all of that, and it had been just here the whole time. But like, either you're going to understand that, 
you're only going to understand when the glasses fall. I mean, maybe you get it when she pushes her glasses up and she suddenly her eyes are very tiny and she just can't see hope yeah. around her. She can't literally see and she can't see the hope. So that was um, that was that sort of uh, what I call the illustrator author play date that Tara Hannon and I did and for which the art is just, oh, I love it so much. I cannot wait to That's see amazing. yeah, how they go together. I'm so excited for that. And thank you for sharing it on the podcast. I, I mean, like I said, it was like a perfect cap. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to read it aloud and realize how long it is, how it's bumpy, <laughs> how I can't say certain words without practicing them together. I know we're always supposed to read our work aloud to prevent that from happening, but rarely do do that so i know yeah just send it to me just like 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 before steph i'll I'll record it i loved what you did with my cloud forest books which i story which i still love i love the three versions that you the three voices that you use i thought that was really brilliant yeah oh my gosh yeah josh loves doing that this has been a delight. Yes, thank you. Oh, for you. me too. For me too. I could seriously do this for hours. I love talking about this kind of stuff with like-minded people and, again, being honest and encouraging about, you know, even though things seem pretty bad right now at times, it's uh, it, it can't stay this way forever. It's going to change. Yeah, totally. Right. No, but no. yeah. I mean, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I just, I'm a big fan of you online anyways, and I'm so glad we got to talk to you in person and actually like sit down and chat and like see you. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I've long been an admirer of your podcast. And so oh. I'm excited to finally add my voice to it. And I can't wait to see. Brenna, when is your book coming out? It comes out April, 2024. Okay, so that's yeah, not long. soon. Yeah, it's coming. Yeah, let's leave in a promo for your <laughs> yeah, book, the law of birthdays, sure. and it's a book about choice. I'm very excited about it because it was, you know, it came from the impetus of Roe versus Wade and all that stuff, and I was Ooh, like, well, this is just, awesome. you know, yeah. So it's, I mean, you know, it's about cake and choice, so it's very kid appropriate and friendly. But like, right. that's where my heart was. That's why, you know, that's where it came from. So that's exciting. I yeah. can't wait. Yeah. And Josh, I can't wait to hear more from you about, you know, query trenches or, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, someday. <laughs> when you're It'll ready. Happen. I'm, my glasses, my glasses are on, so I've, I've still yes. got my hope. Yes. <laughs> all right. All right. Thanks, Thanks you guys. Thanks for listening this week. Find all of our episodes and other associated links and information at linktree.com slash verse show. Or reach out to us on Twitter. Thanks again, and we'll see you next verse. Bye.